0: Welcome to The Green Majority. Stefan Hostetter is a bison. Stefan Hostetter is a free-range, freshwater bison. We are on CIUT 89.5 FM, or on your local community radio station, or on your podcast app, Harbinger Media Network, who I've learned is actually socialist, according to the book that we are discussing today. I did not know I was unwittingly associated with a socialist organization, so that's not something that was flown past my uh, conscious radar prior to that that uh, that connection. So
1: that reminds me of when I was like fourteen and deep in my Adbusters phase. I feel like I've referenced Adbusters so much in the last couple months. Anyway, I was deep in my Adbusters phase at fourteen, and at some point, somebody explicitly used the word communist, and I was like, "Oh." <gasps> This is a con? And I was like so freaked out.
0: This is Canada's longest running environmental news hour. Environmental I forgot the word I desired to utter, and now Stefan is eyeing me like a fish in a tank, wondering when he's gonna get fed. You've so far called me a bison and a fish. Freshwater bison.
1: One time we went away to vacation in Mexico for a week when I was six. And when we came back, the cleaning lady had accidentally hit the ther- hit the, the thermostat on our fish tank and they boiled. And there was a big <laughs> ball of fish goo where they had all heated up fish and congealed while we were on vacation.
0: <laughs> Tell me you battered and deep fried that thing.
1: Absolutely. Why
2: would you have a temperature that would allow you to turn it to boiling?
1: A good question for the fish tank people. <laughs> yeah. We are not trying to recreate the experience of like, you know, like the fish that are like the worms that like live on the side of like the, the volcanic gas release tubies at the bottom of the ocean. Yeah. Where it's like, nothing can live down here. And then they realize that no, no, they do anyway. So RIP to the congealed ball of fish in my fish tank circa 2000.
0: And we are going to finish our book club for the end of this world
1: we read a book everyone seven months seven chapters
0: the end of this world climate justice in so-called canada Stefan and lauren interviewed four of these six authors back in january and we have now completed reading the book and we're going to discuss the last two chapters Stefan has prepared some questions about these chapters yes that we shall address yes shall i begin please okay
2: if the previous two chapters, if you forget, were about the sort of nuts and bolts of the world that we want, chapters six and seven are about how we can get there and how we can fund what we get there, like how we can fund the the policies to get there. That's sort of those last two. It's about winning the transition as the last two were about what the transition would sort of entail. And it included a couple different lists that I actually think are wickedly helpful in, in the sixth chapter, the authors provide four key questions which help you evaluate a strategy for social change. And the four questions, slightly paraphrased, are, Does it materially increase the strength and size of indigenous jurisdiction, reduce emissions, and slash or improve the conditions for working class people? Two, Does it include the groups most impacted by the issue and avoid making it harder uh, for these people to meet their basic needs? Three, does it reduce the legitimacy and power of the fossil fuel industry, corporations, and colonial government systems? And four, does it grow collective power, free up resources for movements, and slash or make the vision of a just transition more tangible? And so my question uh, to the two of you, Is are there any other sort of smell tests that you would add to this list, or is there anything you want to highlight that you find sort of is extra important or interesting from these four? And I'll begin with you, Lauren.
1: Like you said, the first several chapters are kind of like laying out that big, beautiful vision for the future, and then this is the nuts and bolts of of how it can be tangibly achieved. And I so appreciated this; these two chapters as a reader, as somebody who's involved in climate organizing it was so helpful. And I'm so excited to like reread these chapters and share them with people, these four points specifically. And then in addition to, they add kind of a, it's it's not even a fifth one, but it's sort of like the way they sort of like sum it together and phrase it is it's like using these sort of like four key questions, you can evaluate how transformative your strategy is going to be. And then the kind of additional question is like, and also can you map out a f- a a feasible path to winning as well, which is sort of kind of the, the extra one. The big one is it's like, okay, so you have this wonderful idea that is liberatory and sufficiently transformative is is there is there a pathway to winning via that strategy or achieving that, achieving that goal. Um, and I'm, I'm really excited to bring this into my work because like something I remember, like when you're doing that sort of like planning and dreaming, usually in January and February, where you're trying to figure out what your year is going to look like. One of the big sort of questions I asked myself and I have not been able to answer because it's kind of existential is like, is the work that I am doing in my day job, like liberatory in any way, or am I just feeding into kind of the nonprofit industrial complex? Am I just sort of propping up neoliberal solutions and not really trying to break us out of these harmful paradigms that this book sort of like goes into such detail to to explain why they're false solutions? So I really appreciate that like now I no longer have to just like lie in bed awake at night being like, oh, is my work liberatory and transformative? It's like, no, I can actually like look at like, okay, if these are my goals and these are the strategy- strategies I'm trying to like implement, in my work, did they map onto these kind of four smell tests? Um, and if not, then 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 maybe I need to go back to the drawing board with my organization or with my team or just with myself to figure out exactly how I can better contribute to to achieving these goals in in, in a faster, better, stronger, Daft Punky way.
2: You know? No, oh, yeah, for sure. Uh, I have some thoughts, but I'll go to Dave first.
0: Well, Thanks for prefacing me with your thoughts. I am. I am going to spread the delicious butter of my thoughts upon the scrumptious stomachs of our listeners. Just, a, just, just after, just after Dave delivers his dry and meaningless diatribe. Wow. Um. The so the one that I thought was particularly difficult for the Canadian movement is the third one. Uh, does it legitimize or expand the power of corporations or colonial governments? It shouldn't. It's like, ha- have we even conceived of any strategies that do not legitimize the power of colonial governments or, or corporations? Like, I don't know. I don't. I don't, I don't I, 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 it's like, like, those are our. Those are feel like our only avenues. Uh, through, through corporations, wooing corporations, convincing corporations, or moving the colonial government into a, a different direction. So it's sort of like, and so the question is, is it transformative, is actually quite meaningful in that context, because if it doesn't meet that standard, then it's not transformative, which is true. But that means that the, tran- that the transformative is a very high standard to meet.
1: Well, Dave, and, and I think you're right. Like I, I do think um the the writers, I should I should see if I can flip back and, and pull out some specific examples. Cause I think like when you're when when they start talking about like uh community-based renewables, especially in Indigenous communities and stuff like that, and kind of developing like quite literally those alternative means of power, I feel like that could fit in within that category of like not propping up corporate and um colonial governments. But but I think you make a really good point, especially like as somebody who does Their day job kind of revolves around making policy changes within a colonial government. I think using that that criteria, you could argue that no, the work that the vast majority of like, quote unquote, environment and climate based organizations within so-called Canada do like is not transformative because when it gets down to it what we're ultimately trying to do is influence colonial federal policy. And again, it's like within this book, like they do, they do allow for like, and like that is still a good thing to do. That's still a worthy thing to do. But at the end of the day, it's it's not the transformation and the liberation we're, we're really looking for.
2: There's a line in this that I wish I could find from that they reference uh, from another thinker, which is something like, how do you make what is impossible now possible? And, that, I think, is where, you know, this sort of question three comes in, right? Like, if the ways you could begin to make an example of of the impossible now possible in the future is by expanding Indigenous jurisdiction, which, you know, is happening across so-called Canada in a few, not big ways, unfortunately, but slowly it is a is a growing success. And, you know... Like, and how are you building sort of more power outside of corporations and inside more democratic systems? And I think that as you do that, slowly but surely, you could open up the opportunity to begin to really start pushing back on some of the more colonial systems or the colonial government and corporations. But like, yeah, I mean, right now it definitely feels like a significant Maybe, but
0: like, look at all the stuff we were angry about Doug Ford for doing, canceling those those energy those green energy contracts, right? We wanted those corporations to come in, like those those European corporations, to build their their stuff here, right? Sure. And so, support of that doesn't doesn't even fall into this framework.
2: Well, no, because again, it falls into parts of the framework in that it does reduce emissions. And so it would be, you know, there are pieces of this that it would fall into, but it does not fall into the entirety of the, you know, of the question, right? Like, that. one of the things I appreciated about this book, honestly, is that it, it, it focuses on building and long-range thinking. And so, like, it leaves room for, okay, this project does do these things, and it doesn't do everything, but at least begins to get us forward a little bit. Um, you know, the one thing that I had thought about specifically around this question was for me, a lot of my early organizing experience was basically leading up to protests and then the protest would be the big experience and sort of the 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 big let out and then you would go home. And and then you'd wait for the next protest. And f- when you look at that model, from this framework, you can see how it basically fails the test almost fundamentally because, like, unless you're expecting the people on the streets to stay on the streets until material changes occur, it has to be a stepping stone to something else. Like, a protest can be a great way to build community. It can be a great way to build power, but it can only exist as a part of a plan that is then going to get real power or change afterwards, and le- or, or you're just sort of accepting that you're coming there shouting at you know, buildings and then leaving, and that's not transformative. And so for me, I think that part of it is really important because I'm sure the people planning most of the marches I attended had a larger movement strategy in mind and were doing larger movement strategy thinking, but me, as someone who wasn't so fully connected, didn't see that. And I think if I didn't see that, many people don't see that. And I think that's a big problem for, for us who are environmentalists, that if most of the people who experience our protests and our, and our, 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 our efforts to change see the yelling at buildings as the end-all, be-all of our actions, that is not a galvanizing or successful way to, A, bring them on board, or B, make them understand how change happens. Because like this is that's not how change happens. You know, later on, they talk about the explanation of like, why the Montreal student strikes in 2012 were so effective. And it was because of like three years of groundwork from previously. And that time and time again, are the answers to successful protest, you know, it's not the one big protest that gets the goods, it is the organizing that exists in for years beforehand. And I think we need to do a lot better job communicating that thinking and those reasons to the sort of outside populace. Else it just seems like your only goal is to, you know, yell at buildings.
1: Yeah. 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 A solitary tactic does not a fulsome strategy make. And and I think you're right. I think we maybe don't do like like there's something Uh, in in the book that like, it talks a lot about like the need to, to like train and to pass down knowledge and stuff like that. And, and yes, we need to share that knowledge and those trainings within our, within organizing circles, but, but you're right. I think um, it's almost like a form of like civic education that needs to happen around, around what, how change-making takes place. Um, Because like you said, it's not just showing up to vote, showing up to march on the street once every three years and like tweeting about it a bunch. Um, Those are, those are just little piecemeal moments. Um, but I did just want to make sure that I believe I know the quote you're talking about because it was referenced twice within this book. And it's um Paolo Friere. I apologize if I'm mispronouncing that name. Um and the quote is, What can we do today so that tomorrow we can do what we were unable to do today? And that's another thing. It's like I feel like this is the type of book that like my colleagues laugh at me for because i end up just like writing quotes on sticky notes and sticking them around my office because it's like yes that's something that like i really want to carry especially into like coalition spaces that i might be part of because it's like okay coalition spaces the work is always iterative it's always ongoing it's always about like that like small scale relationship building and trust building that has to happen over and over and over and over again and it's like okay so if we know that like the big goal is down the road what how are we laying the groundwork for that in, in 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 the work that we're able to do right now if we're not able to sort of like reach for that star just yet
2: yeah exactly like that need for infrastructure to me in the in the, in the prioritization of building infrastructure and how that can exist in both media or in workspaces, you know, or organizing spaces or physical infrastructure. You know, part of this is like the need for physical spaces is brought up in terms for gathering, which obviously makes sense when you think about it. But it's like, again, not a common way we think about organizing. Like, it seems so often superfluous or only exists when you're protesting. And it's like, no, like, there's a reason why, you know, kitchen tables end up being so transformative. And it's because it's a physical space you can be in and join together with your comrades. And I think like those kind of things... And the highlighting of those kind of things to me is really Kitchen
1: key. Um, one more thing, because I know you have more questions, but I did just want to say um, my what I was thinking was right. The the author that quote is from um, Paulo again Freire, Freire. I'm I apologize if that's mispronounced or poorly pronounced. Um, he he wrote a pedagogy Pedagogy of the Oppressed, which mm-hmm. is a book that sat on my shelf for a really long time, and I only read a couple chapters of. If any of my friends are listening and you borrowed that from me, please return <laughs> it. I know I owned it at some point and I would really like to read it one day and one of you borrowed it and that's fine. Just please return it. I would like to read it. Um, Wait, before
0: you move on, let me yeah. ask Stefan Hostetter a question. here. Sure. Mr. Question Asker. All right. I'm going to ask Stefan Hostetter a question.
2: You've made that clear.
0: Uh, this is on the same section here. Since you you've, you've spoke with the banking on a better future people. Yeah. I just wanted to ask like, so they mentioned that they're they're evaluating banking divestment campaigns. They're like, if the banks just divest, it doesn't mean that other people are di- are, are divesting, right? Mm-hmm. So it's like, unless the banks are changing their structures, uh, simple divestment is not is not necessarily going to yield uh, transformative results. And so, but then they mentioned banking on a better future as work to make a vision of public banking outside of capitalism more tangible um, to both organizers and the public. But in general, they want banks to sort of become democratic in a sense. Um, Because, because I guess banks themselves sort of make decisions about what the economy is going to be, right? These, these people are like, how are we going to get that money flowing? So, In what sense is Banking for a Better Future doing what they're saying they're doing here? Like uh, a vision of public banking outside of capitalism.
2: I mean, that's not a question I've put to any of the specific organizers we've spoken to because we've mostly talked about what their current campaigns are. But, you know, the the most of that work is about moving your money, say, out of the traditional banking infrastructure into credit unions. And credit unions is a system where everyone is a member. So a credit union is a more democratic version of banking because I believe, and someone correct me if wrong, there's a structure for anyone who has money in the bank to be a voting public, whereas in the traditional banking, you only you have to have shares to be a voting member. So you're even just moving doing that simple of a move would be a dramatic shift in democratizing the structure of banking um, away from. You know, the rich who own the banks to everyone who has a share in the bank because they are a lent, they are part of the union. Um, Question two. uh, So in chapter seven, there's another list. And as I was a fan of all the lists in these chapters, I will say. And they basically offer five ways uh, for people to get more involved. And I'm curious if y'all can talk about which one of the sort of five suggestions sort of stood out to you and if you want to elaborate on it. But for our listeners' sake, I will inform them what the five are. The first one is that you can't struggle alone and to find other people to, you know, work with you and the need for community within the struggle. The second is that there are thousands of ways to quote unquote get involved. And this is like a hobby horse that we've had on this show for years. And so we go on forever about this, but I'll leave that there for now. The third, which I think it was interesting and introduced me to a word that I had never heard before, is that the work is prefigurative, which basically, to my understanding, means that we have to organize in the way we want to see the world. So the work, the way we do the work has to mimic the world that you're building. And four is that we need to seek out and help others find opportunities for training, mentorship, and developing strategy. Lauren mentioned this a little bit earlier. And five is that solidarity is a verb and that our that our liberation is bound up together. And I think that is one that is only s- slowly getting into the environmental consciousness in the last about 10 years and probably was the one you were worst at for a long time. But those are the five. Lauren, uh, what would you want to drill down on?
1: it's so interesting their use of the word prefigurative and I appreciate it. And I appreciate the way they teased it out because sometimes the way we hear prefigurative used is in reference to, um, I feel like I was having conversations with friends about this a couple months ago, prefigurative within the context of like, commune style living especially within the environmentalist community prefigurative meaning like yes so i live my values and that means i have a homestead in the woods i grow my own food all my house is completely solar powered and off grid and me and my hippie friends are all polyamorous who like knit in the winter time valid legitimate way to live we love that um, but but I think sometimes it's like if, if it's not tied into like that political campaigning element, which is which is what they're talking about within the context of this book, they're not talking about going away in the woods and being off on your own and removing yourself from a political situation and therefore quote unquote living your values. They're talking about it within the context of like treating each other with love and care and compassion and understanding, because that is the type of world that we would like to see and incorporating those values within to our organizing spheres, among other things. Anyway. That was just sort of my very first thought. But, but the one I want to kind of hone in on, which is sort of the easy one to hone in on. So I do apologize that you can't struggle alone part. And I think that's because something that listeners might have heard me reference before is the fact that like I am trying to sever my in-depth relationship with my phone and with Twitter and with just like living online too much. And I think The reason why I was attracted to this first one around you can't struggle alone is because it's a good reminder that like being on Twitter and being on social media and retweeting the things that you're supposed to retweet and liking and sending out like my pithy like here's looking at you Trudeau like that's not organizing and that's not being effective and that's not building community and like that's not actually meaningfully contributing to the cause in any way in part because it's alone and it's it's in this weird little bubble it's when I'm by myself like hunched over my laptop on my couch eating candy like that's not that's not organizing it might make me feel better in the moment but it is it is it is ineffective work and in part part that's because it's it's i'm doing it by myself in my own little silo and i'm and i'm only speaking to my silo as well so that's that's one for me to remember is that like actually no in order to be an effective organizer you kind of have to be around others in some way shape or form anyway it doesn't mean that like twitter now called x yeah. my god Ugh. isn't isn't useful in some capacity but i i think in the last 10 years i'm going to say we have come to rely on it way too much to be a, to be an outlet for for quote unquote organizing when when in actuality it's not actually effectively building power in any meaningful way it's just a bit of a steam valve for us
2: yeah and b- before i pass over to dave the other thing about it i think is that it goes back to that pref- prefigurative piece is that Online spaces are mean in a way that it is less true of in-person spaces. People are drastically better at being mean online than they are in person, especially to people who they vaguely or mostly agree with. Like the ways that online culture impact how you respond to people that you like 85% agree with is, you know, is bonkers. Right. Like the it's a completely you're not saying, oh, I thought of this one other thing about that. You're saying, well, why didn't you say this or something like that? And that because, again, you said it's a steam valve, right? Like you're you're feeling pent up and stressy because you're reading this never ending set of bad. And then you see someone who annoys you because they missed the little thing you think. And you respond. And like that's just a a toxic uh, space. And so like if we're talking about how to build caring cultures, you got to do that partially in spaces where people are better at caring for each other. And that undeniably is in person.
0: That, um, intense rejection of people that you mostly agree with does happen in person as well. Sure. Um, and so on the prefigurative one, they say prefigurative means practicing the good relations. We need a decolonial just transition to be rooted in. And, um, part of obviously establishing those good relations as they mentioned, is not uh pillorying people who make little mistakes um and which leads into their un, their other point our liberation is bound up together and so they make an interesting distinction between uh the idea of like of like racism or like whatever like ingrained prejudices uh unconscious i mean they don't use this, this terminology but that's sort of implied that ra- that racism is an individual problem that is based on individual habits or transmisogyny or whatever it, whatever the prejudice may be uh they're moving it from an individual to a to a collective or systemic issue and so that and so in that framework one individual does not get uh like destroyed for uh, expressing you know uh non uh, accepted opinions or something like that because the because their expression of that opinion is part of the exposing of the whole uh collective um structure and so and so the idea of racism being a, a collective or the or any prejudice holding us back being a collective um problem sort of mo- moves it away from the uh gross Ego, egocentric problem of people having to deal with their own personal prejudices and racism before they can, like, do anything.
2: Well, yeah, and I think that goes back to a little bit like, you know, this book, as we'll discuss, I think, in the next question, is pretty distinctly abolitionist. I don't know whether they would 100% describe themselves as such, but I think that's pretty clear. And you can't really have an abolition abolitionist organization or structure that then wants to sort of exclude people for their failings. Like you have to be overwhelmingly committed to reform to be, to be an abolitionist. And it's like, those
0: people are in jail.
2: Well, I mean, like it's amazing. Like, to me, abolitionists completely are some of the most fascinating and interesting thinkers because it goes against something that even for me is like deeply core. Like there's a few people who I can't not think maybe should just be in jail. Like I, I don't have fully the ability to to get to that place of like, no, it's a inhumane system that should entirely not exist. And we should find other systems for this. And and so if you're going to be sort of bring that forward – you have to find a way to bring that that belief across all sectors, and especially with the people that you're organizing with, right? Like, you know, you, you, like if your if your random colleague or comrade drives you nuts or, or make, really is like annoying to you. That's a thing you have to find a way past for sure before you get to any of the people, you know, who you distinctly disagree with, in, that you need to sort of find a way to reform or find a way to, to move forward with. And so if you're going to take those sort of theories and, and really make them prefigurative, the amount of transformation you are actually expecting is monumental.
1: Yeah, I, I will say, but like like to that point about sort of um, like uh, uh, approaching things from like, like an abolitionist, non-punitive position – When I when I have had conversations with people who are who are far more, I don't know, adept thinkers in these topics than I am. The the thing that does always come up, though, is that like conflict isn't a bad thing, though, especially within organizing circles. And, And they talk about it in this book as well. It's that it's like the trick isn't to never call somebody out or never call somebody in or, or never sort of like have those difficult conversations. It's that as, a, as movements, as affinity groups, as communities, we, we, as, as, as individuals in, in one-on-one relationships, we need to learn how to move through conflict in a way that is like, itself generative and transformative. It's, it's like, I, myself, am only in, I'm am, am, am only in the position I am. I'm, I'm only in the job I am because I've, had good enough relationships with people that when I have messed up, when I have said stupid things, when I have, when I have behaved in a a way that wasn't, I don't know, ideal, they've been able to have the wherewithal and had the grace to come to me, correct the behavior, have a conversation with me about how I need to do better. And then I've been able to build on that experience. Like it's, it's figuring out how to have those generative conflicts is so important and and i think the way we do that the only way we can do that is by extending and building really deep trust with each other and unfortunately that means not just as individuals and again not just as affinity groups and and, and organizations but across organizations and across various facets of the movement which is which is what we we struggle with and we come back to all the time again in these chapters they talk a lot about coalition they talk about building a really broad progressive movement in so-called Canada moving people from kind of a a bit of a populist to a more more deeply political mindset. And that's really hard because it involves a lot of little conflicts all of the time and figuring how to how to move individuals and groups through those little conflicts all the time. Um anyway, i I don't have anything like really like, I don't have a eureka moment or phrase, but it's just like that that strikes me is that it's like, when God, it really is all just about, building trust with each other over and over and over again.
2: Yeah. While still finding
1: time to do the actual other work as well.
2: (laughs) To go back to your previous point about how online, offline, or Twitter spaces that are more broadcasty versus community spaces, which could be online still, but are more about internal communication, I think that's where you can sort of see those differences, right? Like in a broadcast sort of setting, it's going to be more call-out, but in an internal setting, you are creating space hopefully for – a, a call-in or a deepening of relationship. Like, one thing that I re- consistently think about in in sort of my my day job, which is sort of managing a community, is that, like, as long as people are telling me when things are going wrong, they are displaying a level of trust that I will fix it, you know? And, it, like, it, this is usually, you know, a work or building setting. It's not me specifically, but it could be. But so for me, it's more like I just have to my my gut check is am i still hearing about things going wrong because if i'm still hearing what things going wrong then people are still trusting that i can fix it versus once you start not hearing from things then you're then that should be a warning bell for people to be like okay should i begin to figure out what else might be happening or do i need to expand who i'm talking to to figure out you know where these things can be might be going wrong
1: Yeah, it's it's almost like and I'm gonna try to say this in as in as specific a way as I can. It's almost like if you or maybe you're witnessing a friend in an intimate partner relationship and it's like, oh, things are going great. We like, we don't argue, no conflict ever comes up, and it's like, okay, girl, that's that's just because you haven't actually unearthed anything yet. Like it's, that's because it's, it's, it's surface level because like the only way to build intimacy and trust is through, is through conflict is through argument. Well, not the only way, but like, that's a big way to do it. And, and it doesn't mean that like, sorry, I'm not saying that anybody needs to be in a miserable relationship where you fight all the time. That's obviously not the point I'm trying to make, but that it's like, if you're, if you're only ever having surface level, easy conversations where nothing ever arises, that's uncomfortable. It means that like what you're building isn't in any way intimacy, whether that's in a partner relationship or in an organizing space.
0: And we are going to take a music break and return with The Green Majority discussing the book, The End of This World, Climate Justice in So-Called Canada. The Green Majority is entirely listener supported, and we would take this opportunity to graciously thank every individual donating to our Patreon page. Thank you very much. We are a proud member of the Harbinger Media Network, home of such podcasts as Alberta Advantage, The Breach Show, and The Pullback Podcast, as well as over 40 other excellent shows. We are back with The Green Majority, and we are talking about the book we have all just finished reading. The end of this world, climate justice in so called Canada.
2: All right, so question three uh, is also going back to chapter six. The authors discuss what should be, quote unquote, defunded to pay for the just transition. And they highlight specifically police and prisons, the military, fossil fuel subsidies, taxing the rich and corporations, and then highway and aviation expansion. And probably now actually next week's show, we'll discuss uh, the federal government's first steps to reducing inefficient fossil fuel subsidies. But it feels like we're so far off these, these other hopes in a pretty significant way. And so I'm wondering, how can we as a climate movement better tie our asks to these larger mechanisms of colonial capitalism to show that these neoliberal solutions that we so often experience right now won't actually stop climate change in the way we need it to?
1: When I saw you were going to ask this question earlier, I'm like, it's intimidating because... It's something that we that we know to be true. We know theoretically we have to like pull down the barriers that silo our our fights and figure out how to build this broad based coalition of, of of progressive organizers and activists and community members. Um, but it's really hard to do in practice because. Um, I think, I think the reason it was maybe hard to do in practice 15 or 20 years ago is because there was like this concept of mission creep and like, oh, well, like they deal with prison abolition and I deal with trees and we don't need to meet in the middle because like they do their work and I do mine. And if we all do our work separately, then it'll be great. And we've learned that that, that it doesn't really work that way. We do need to show mutual support and solidarity with one another, and, and now I'm realizing like where, where it was really hard for a long time up until very, very recently is that it's a lot of us still operate on funding models that, that dictate our, our actions. And a lot of those funding models, again, keep us in our silos because it means that yes, even though I am maybe communicating with somebody who works on Migrant rights, for instance, I'm not explicitly funded to do that work on migrant rights issues and migrant justice issues. So it means I can communicate with that person. I can maybe see what they're doing. I can maybe retweet their tweet. I can maybe show up at their march in a best case scenario. But aside from that, like, I think that's almost sort of the phase of like cross movement, cross coalitional solidarity that at least... When I say the, I'm 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 referring to the paid movement a lot because that's what I'm familiar with, and I understand it's a very narrow subset of any progressive movement or even the climate movement. But but that's what I'm referencing right now, and it's it I I feel like it's it's becoming you know, not it's becoming it is hard for us to move past that sort of initial step level of solidarity because um, it's hard to figure out how to how to work that into your workday and how to build that into your work plan and your strategizing and stuff like that putting aside all of the, all of the complexities about actually doing the relationship building that you need to have in order to build trust with these other organizations and, and, and incorporate their asks into your asks, because like, I am not a migrant justice expert. So it's really hard for me to know what policy issue areas to push for and stuff like that. But like, it's, I know how to show up to somebody else's march. I know how to wave a flag. I know how to retweet. I know how to put on a t-shirt. I know how to even read from their briefing note if I'm going into a lobbying meeting. Um and I, and I struggle beyond that. I'm like I, I I need I need somebody to help me figure out what that next more deep and meaningful step is. Um cuz yeah, it's I'm 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 stuck. So this is this is a cry for help. If anybody's <laughs> listening and is shaking their head being like, "Oh my god," please. I mean,
2: I, yeah, I mean, I, I do really actually want to get uh Saeed Hassan to come on the show to talk about migrant dresses work leading up to September 17th. So. was
1: literally having that thought today. I wrote that. Oh, you know what it is? I wrote that thought down on the bookmark I had when I was <laughs> finishing this chapter.
2: Amazing. Yes. We will do that before September 17th, uh, which is a, which is a big day uh, of action. Um, So, we'll hold ourselves to that. Dave, your thoughts?
0: So I guess like, I would need something more, th- like, theoretically precise. I think we need maybe more theoretical precision of, like, in the sense of, like, what... And this is not me asking you for it. I'm saying, like, in order to bridge these boundaries, like, what is it about prisons that cause climate change? Or, like, what is about the colonial system that's creating climate change, right? Um, okay, prison is a European form of punishment, Uh, or at least our prisons are a European form of punishment in order to inflict like a a public suffering upon, upon an evildoer. Um, And that's now put in this, in Canada in a colonial context where we imprison a lot of indigenous people. And it's sort of like a, it's like a, it's an ostentatious display of sort of like what we believe to be the implicit problem with like the existence of indigenous people that they're, that they're in the way of our colonial project perhaps. And then so, the existence of these prisons perhaps props up the idea that there is a like fundamentally and in, in this case racialized group of bad actors who need to be put away in their place i don't know I, w- I would just i would just want to i would i would the only way i can think of approaching it is having a very precise like connection between these issues and and how they uh how how they help solve one another and if- what they're building what what their what their dissolution and and what those movements are building together
1: if i can i think what you're almost speaking to is like this is going to sound like a tangent and i apologize if it does um but what you're almost speaking to is like one of the one of the problems that lies at the crux of like uh taking progressivism from like simple populism into like really an engaged and political movement and base that's, that's broader than just like the narrow left, um, is because it requires a lot of really deep thinking. It's, it's predicated on notions that aren't knee-jerk, that aren't based on like nasty, selfish instincts. It's like it it doesn't mean it's counterintuitive, but it does mean that like it it requires a lot of deep thought. And, And in order to do that, it sort of goes back to like those really basic principles, like like those like Aristotelian ideals of like how a society works. And it's that people have to have free time to do the good thinking that is required of them in order to meaningfully engage in a political process. Um, And I think the thing you're speaking to right there is that like we often I think one of the problems that we have on the left is that we don't all have the time to do the good thinking and the good conversing and the musing around these issues that unite us all. So instead, we allow ourselves just to be like, okay, well, like I don't actually have time to think about those connections and I don't have time to think about that right now. What I do have time to do is just like show up to this one meeting tonight that's worrying about like, I don't know, bikes on streets. So the environment is my thing because that's what I have time to worry about. Um, And it's like we don't we don't even have like the infrastructure in place to allow us to to conceptualize these things for ourselves.
0: Yeah, which is perhaps part of the utility of a book like this, where it says, like, if we can get a few of these things done, you know, in the next few years, then that puts us in a nice, nice position to do a few other things. And so it's like and so and so it helps us think about mapping out which which struggles I mean, it goes back to that quote, you're going to put your sticky note on the office. But like which which struggles, which which victories earlier on will lay the groundwork for uh, a more robust inclusion later? Or like what can what can snowball and what can what can be built upon?
2: Yeah. And I think the one that I'm seeing, at least here in Toronto, be a, a successful galvanizing point is the raising the taxes on the rich and corporations because there is a level when things get so bad here, especially that the massive budgetary shortfall basically leads you to the question. Well, do you not like, do you want your Scarborough RT to literally fall off the tracks, which it did yesterday? Thank you very much, John Tory and Doug Ford. And, all the other people who led to that happening? Um, Or do you want to tax the people who live in Rosedale more money? And 99% of people will very quickly be like, yeah, I've walked through Rosedale. Those people live in giant mansions. Maybe they could afford a little more money. So the people in Scarborough have a train that doesn't fall off the tracks. That is a very simple one-to-one. And when and then and and what has been very successful led by a group of different and across sector organizations here in Toronto has been this sort of call of look the number one problem you have to fix is revenue you have to make more money else you, all of us will harm all of our problems will get worse you can't afford to ensure everyone has housing unless you raise more money you can't afford to ensure That, you know, everyone is fed unless you raise more money. You can, you know, time and time again, that piece becomes so key. And when you think about that in a larger context, you can begin to piece together how, say something like a drastically stronger welfare state, suddenly you are – Finding new ways to take care of people instead of criminalizing them for sleeping in parks you've decided are closed at night, or for needing food and feeding food. Like right now, it's happening all across the states and a little bit in Canada too. Is that people are being arrested for giving food to the hungry, and that is a way to, to the hungry to the hungry.
0: Not not just, not just migrants at the border, but no,
2: like in know. cities, just anywhere. And, and that is the way that you – the way that we criminalize and, and cr- criminalization is itself in abolitionist thinking is a political structure that is a decision of what's a crime and what's not. You know, like a – for example, a uh, – well, let's use the example of if I went out and just started chainsawing trees down outside, I would probably get arrested – But apparently, if you're Universal Studios or whichever studio it was down in Los Angeles, you can destroy every tree that would have provided shade for the protesters across the street, and you'll get a $250 fine. And that's not criminal anymore because a corporation did it. And so you can see that if you were able to drastically improve our ability to take care of the people who need to be taken care of while also pulling down the wealth and power of the people who have way too much wealth and power currently, suddenly some of these other wins become more possible, right? Like suddenly it becomes more possible to imagine a world where we don't have private jets or where we don't need massive um, fossil fuel subsidies to ensure that you know, the people who still have to drive can afford to drive like these kind of things become n- moot if we can just create a more just and equitable society. And so like each one of them has these similar and that's, that's what I think is what is I'll wrap up here. But that I think to me is what makes the book and what makes the sort of whole thing in thinking like this um, optimistic because you're, while all of our problems are interconnected, which means that one problem makes another problem worse, that also means the solutions are interconnected and that one solution makes another solution more likely if you're done effectively. And I think that's what sort of when you start imagining this ball beginning to roll down a hill, it, you can actually imagine us getting to this sort of good life and good, good way that that's sort of they're advocating for because you can see that and get there.
0: Uh, you under the final question?
2: Yes, final question. Quickly, I would say if we all we all have like maybe one minute, approximately. Well, you you if, cut it
0: out? I might because we did talk about Julie Eleven a bit, so I'd have oh, to sure, delete yeah, that.
2: Right. Um, okay, well then two minutes perhaps if you want each. Um, overall takeaways from the book, starting with you, Lauren.
1: So, sort of two things. One would. Obviously, first off, just like a a full chested endorsement of the book, whether you are somebody who is like currently within the climate movement and really looking to like, I don't know, uh, get some really solid insight on like what the solutions are and strategically where we need to be orienting ourselves and like really tangible things like the, like the four piece sort of like smell test that we referenced earlier to like run sort of your, your, your strategies and tactics selection through like that is, is great. So if you're already kind of, if you already consider yourself quote unquote part of the movement, pick it up and read it. And if you're not, still pick it up and read it. Because I think what, especially the first chunk the book does so well is lay out those, um, the vision for the future that everybody is always whining and moaning that we lack. We're all like, we don't know where we're going. Yes, we fucking do. We know where we're going. We know what we want. And this book lays it out really beautifully and really explicitly. And in terms that are actually, I, I don't think, or like, they're easy to understand is what I'm trying to say. Like I, like the language that's being used is really approachable here. The length of the book really approachable here. It's less than 200 pages. You can get through this book. I promise you. And especially if you're from so-called Canada, it's going to feel really relevant and it's going to feel really timely. And then I think just sort of like my thing for myself is that like reading, especially these last couple chapters, and I don't think we have, but like, I really, really hope we haven't squandered the opportunity that a just transition presents us. I I think there's this is almost a note to myself as much as to anybody else. It's like the 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 cross-coalitional movement building we could do around just transition has the potential to be so powerful. The ways in which we could bring on everyday so-called Canadians could be so powerful. And I think we are allowing ourselves to kind of drop the ball here. And I think part of that is is like, although the legislation isn't the be all end all, that's not even really what I'm focusing on, but I think in allowing Natural Resources Canada to rename their just transition bill, the Sustainable Jobs Act, I think it allowed us to, it allowed us to allow them to derail the conversation about just transition and pull it out of the public eye. And I know that was kind of their intention because they were thinking it would like negatively coincide with the Alberta election. But I think what it did is kind of take this idea of just transition and all the potential it has to unlock for our like our communities um, and, and pull it out of the public discourse. And I think that really sucks. So I think we have a, a a window that is closing on us to really hop on this just transition bandwagon and like ring the bell, but we can still make that happen. Um, we just have to really put the pedal to the metal here.
0: But it's also true that if they continued to use the term, then that term itself would be watered down by their policy. So in a sense, them not using it is also useful
1: Totally. I think I think I'm just maligning the fact that in them not even using the term, it means it's being heard less by the average person. And I, I just want people to hear it more and become socialized with it and become more comfortable with the concept and more excited about the concept. Um. Anyway.
0: Um. All right. Well, I guess I guess like. Yes, the book is easy. Yes. Yes. The book is not inaccessibly difficult to read. But I do think that like it's not the the concepts that are implicit in it aren't um, readily graspable graspable necessarily by one with our education and allegiances, because, uh, for instance, one central point would be understanding what the treaties are, and so so understanding how this book can work in practice is. It is it requires us to understand what the treaties mean and what and what it means for there to be shared jurisdiction on on different places and how two, how how two nations can have equal claim to the same land um because that's what they're that's what they're saying is the spirit of the treaties and i don't i mean i don't personally really know much about the treaties um i think it's it would be necess, it, would, it might be good for us to l- look into what that means but there's a lot of there's a lot of sort of conceptual flexibility that we're going to need to uh apply in terms of the application of these ideas I think as as um you know people who have grown up identifying with the Canadian state or at least you know been told to identify with the Canadian state because our our legal frameworks just don't don't even you know seem prepared to understand that or to to, to make room for that
2: yeah, although I mean I, the one thing that has been true of the last little bit has been that more and more there have been opportunities for these legal considerations to make more space for that. You know, like there's space in Vancouver that has that is being built up because it's understood to be uh, Indigenous territory. You know, there's spaces like the recent ruling about landmark lane. There's the rulings that we talked previously about about the about the Mi'kmaq. And, and the fisheries out there out east. And so I think part of that is actually the Canadian state catching up to the Canadian jurisdiction and, or, the, the, or the Canadian state catching up to the judicial policies. And so you could imagine something pretty quickly rolling down a hill as those things pick up some steam. Um, but ultimately, my thought of the book is pretty similar, I think, to to everyone's here, which is like it is – by far worth the the read. Um it is great to get something Canadian, you know, it's something nice to actually have it be fully related to our existence because, you know, the the states for all of the ways it's similar also have very di- has a very different history and a very different set of narratives that it tells itself. And so to have a book like this speak directly to the Canadian state and the Canadian people, um I think is important. Because it undoes some of the thinking that you that is so ingrained, and so yeah, I mean, again, I, like I think that for anyone who, if you want to get a better sense of understanding of how and why we should be organizing and in the ways that we can begin to think about a better world, it is the it is the book to read uh, right now. I would say that's how I describe it.
1: Yeah, I'm Um, I'm sending out a summer reading list for for a group of people in the next little while. And like, yes, this is this is going to be top of the list for for organizers and, and activists and climate interested people in so-called Canada, because like you said, it's so refreshing. We're always whining about not having stuff that's written for the for the context that we find ourselves in here with our with our kind of unique parliamentary system and our mess of a party like the the mess of party uh, politics and dynamics and and sort of the unique situation in terms of like decolonization and reconciliation and 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 all of those moving pieces that it's it was so refreshing to read a book that was so relevant to the situation that 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 we find ourselves in because yes there are always lessons to be learned from various political contexts whether that be in latin america or the states or Europe or whatever, but to, to find something that so fulsomely explains the dynamics that are at play uh, in, in, in these time zones in these regions is very cool.